Hi friends and welcome back to the dinner table. I am so excited to have my good friend Rick Gomez here with me tonight. A very loud voice like I am out there in the social media world. You just, this is who I am and this is what I have to say about that. And I, and I appreciate that, like highly appreciate it. The whole social media world is kind of a fun, fascinating, deep breath. I don't even know how to like explain the it. Of the world. Yeah. I didn't go to high school. So for me, this is my example of how people live. If I didn't have Facebook, because I don't have any others, but if I didn't have Facebook, I really wouldn't get glimpses into people's lives. Uh -huh. I might hang out with five or six people in a very superficial manner all week. Yeah. Or I can hear 5,000 stories, 5,000 occupations, 5,000 worries and happiness and successes and yeah. kids being born and dogs being adopted and plants being raised and killed. Yeah. So, yeah Facebook is fascinating. And I, it's, I think it's fantastic. I, get a large portion of my business from Facebook. Uh -huh. Most of my friends, if not all of my friends are on Facebook. It's just, it's a, it's my high school. I'm trying to figure out how to process all the things that have been going on publicly. And I agree with the idea that like the things that we talk about, they're not our whole story. They're only the parts we get, we show you, but I try very hard to be as honest as makes even remote sense in a very public space. But I also, that I would be extremely isolated at the stage of my life if I hadn't gone down that path of, and that's an interesting thing. We were talking a lot tonight about paths we choose. And the truth is in 2010, I went down the social media path and went very public with my life. And it just kept getting more public and more public and more public. And I think I can talk to you about that because I feel like you're in that same, like you went public with your life and then you just, but your business is very affected by it. And so is what I do. It always has 40 been. 40% of my current Facebook, I'm, I'm sorry, 40% of my current real estate business I've tracked to Facebook. Mm -hmm. And some people I've never met, they'll message me mm -hmm. out of the blue, mm -hmm. following you for years. Mm -hmm. Do you, would you be interested in this or doing that? I think Facebook works for us because mankind's most basic human need is to be understood. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have someone to show what we're doing, to have as spectators in our lives, mm -hmm. then we feel unfulfilled. That's where loneliness comes from. So we have to show people what we're doing. Uh, it can go too far sometimes, obviously, mm -hmm. so we overexpose ourselves, mm -hmm. but that leads to the second basic need that mankind has, and that's the need for affirmation or for respect or admiration. So we not only want to put our content out there, but we want people to love it. Yeah. We want them to love us. Yeah. And then we go too far sometimes uh -huh. because we want to keep on showing until uh -huh. somebody picks up what we're putting down. Uh-huh. Yeah. Please, please pay attention to me. Watch me. Recognize, hear me. Yeah. Know who I am. Validate. <laughs> have been thinking a little bit more recently about the parasocial interaction. They've been watching you for a long time and they're like, oh, I'd like to use you for business or whatever. And that happens to me all the time, all the time. Same type of what you're talking about. You know, I learned this during the pandemic and now I understand it better than I understood it back then. But at the beginning of the pandemic, how many people were like, that's not who you are. We thought you were something different. Oh, you haven't been paying attention. Like, and it's interesting to think, oh, people thought, I'm like, I'm not telling a different story than I've been telling for the last 10 years, but you believed my politics were different. You believed I was different about politics than I am. And that makes sense to me, right? But it is that parasocial interaction. They think they know me 
And I'm like, oh no, I have like a whole like side of me that is actually very different than what you see. And so it's been interesting for me to even well, since kind of perception too, when all you can see is red, all the world's a tomato. Uh -huh. So for the most part, people tend to see what they want to see in you. And if it's a good thing that they're looking for, then they're looking for their beliefs to be mirrored. Yeah. If they don't like you, then they're looking for their beliefs to be contradicted in you. They don't want you to believe like them in a lot of ways because it doesn't fit within their worldview of what they should be. And I think the thing about Facebook and not understanding your story is the f right. So they don't understand the whole story. Yeah. And they look at you and they think that you've changed. In reality, you're just showing a different side of the same person that you've always been that no one knows the complete story that as much as we try to be ourselves, you mentioned this earlier, uh -huh. that Facebook makes us want to try to show our best selves. Yeah. Not ourselves. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's the way we're supposed to be demonstrating ourselves to others. Well, and I've found during this period of time, like I'm trying so hard to be authentic that I'm probably oversharing, you know, and sharing things people don't want to see like, Oh, they wanted to go there and be happy. They didn't. And they, then they, and they counted on me, Aislinn to help make them happy and give them peace, love and joy and rainbows and unicorns and all of that. And what I'm giving them now is I'm sad and I feel bad and the world kind of sucks right now. And everybody's like, no, 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 no. We need you to be something different than that. And and then the other thing that I th think is interesting about the whole Facebook world and how you get received is running for office. And you and I both ran for office was an interesting time to be able to see how people responded to me. Strange things like there's like people out there that, that will never, I will never understand. And I just need to let those comments just kind of roll by and not be affected by them. And I think that that was probably the biggest thing that everyone was concerned about with me whenever I ran for office was that I was not going to be able to take the hits. And it was definitely hard, like to, to hear people saying weird things about me. And I know that you dealt with that, but it also got, gave me a, a completely different perspective on politics to the point of where I almost don't want, I'm, I feel like I want to be off the grid completely related to that anymore than I ever was before. It's changed me about politics. Would you describe yourself as a introvert or an extrovert? I think I'm an extrovert, but I also have very, very deep periods of wanting to be introverted and not wanting anybody around. But then this goes back to the loneliness we were talking about earlier. And now it's like, I think my introvertedness comes from control. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I think that when I get involved in like a group, I mean, just every type of way of getting people together and solving problems and whatever. And then I went through a whole period of doing that. And now I'm like, nobody can fucking do anything. I might as well just do it myself. And then that, that's created a kind of introverted anxiety in me. Yeah. Why did you specifically ask that question? What, what made you? Because you talked about how people perceive you on Facebook and how you've evolved or how your story has been shown. I think people probably see you as a certain way. And when you act in another way, it sometimes disappoints their assessment of what they thought you should be or what you are. Oh. So somebody might on Facebook think of you very much as an introvert. You really don't like hanging around large groups of people. You enjoy being out here on the farm all by yourself. Uh -huh. You have very insular groups when you do hang out with somebody. It's yeah, one or two all that. or three. Uh -huh. You enjoy the company of one person, if at all possible. Uh -huh. um, anybody who deals with plants or animals is usually considered an introvert by the rest of the world uh -huh. because they think that you're too introspective. Anyone who reads, anyone who thinks, uh -huh. those are not companion sports. That if you are actually extroverted, then what you're constantly seeking, in my opinion, is the affirmation and understanding of others. 
if mm-hmm. you're perceived as strong, you are not perceived as an extrovert. Uh-huh. As an extrovert needs that. And whenever anybody needs something, it's the opposite of Ayn Rand's definition of freedom. Uh-huh. To need something, to ask for something, to expect something. Uh-huh. When you don't have any of those three things, no needs, asks, or expectations, you're perceived as strong and you're perceived as free, which is introverted. Extroverts depend. Yeah, that's it. That's that's a that mm, that's huge. I'm gonna have to like. I am a rock. I am an island. I'm gonna have to like do some serious like meditating on that, because I feel like one of the things that's happening to me right now in this world is that in this current state of who I am, is that I'm trying to understand what is it about me that was me and was real, and what is it that is things I collected or things people told me I was. I like to perform. I've got a good voice, a a voice that can carry to a room. I got put in positions and I'm intelligent and I'm a good leader. I'm strong and capable. I got put in positions to lead, teach, talk, and I liked being the center of attention. So that gets you put into a category of extroverted. When I find so often that a lot of my characteristics, just like you labeled, are actually very introverted. So I always say like, well, I guess I'm an extrovert introvert. I've taken the Myers-Briggs test before and I can get an E or an I. So I've always just considered myself an EI. I told you earlier today that the reason I think I ended up gardening was more than anything else because it was where I could, it wasn't seen as lazy to sit around and just think because I was out, you know, working with my hands, I was doing something productive. I spent a whole portion of my life trying to come up with what I could do to be productive. What can I create that I can sell? And so I spent the last 20 years of my life learning how to be productive. And now here I am in a position where I'm like, I'm productive but nothing I sell is worth anything to anybody. Nobody gives a shit about vegetables. (laughs) I say that every week and someone goes, I eat vegetables. And I'm like, yeah, but you're like, we're the 1%. If you're hanging out with me, we're we're the 1%, you know? And so it's just this strange, like, how do you get yourself in a position to be all of these things that you've created all of your life and then go, was that really about what I actually, what I actually wanted? Or was it about what I believe the world wanted me to want? That kind of thing. And I think that some of the social media stuff right now is probably a little bit of that. Like, this is what is wanted from me. And so therefore, I'm going to go ahead and put out what is wanted from me. But it's also a matter of trying to keep mm, what people expect of me, I guess. Back to Anne Rand um, earlier, that quote about freedom. She gives a definition of happiness, and I think the definition of happiness by anybody who ever gives it, and almost every philosopher has, including the Bible, um, it might be the most important question there is, because doesn't everybody want to be happy every single day? Happiness mm. is the cure for loneliness. Yes. Happiness is the cure for everything. Mm-hmm. If I could be happy every day, I'd be happy. Mm-hmm. Well, I get up in the morning and go, I'm going to be happy today. Exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. Our affirmations, <laughs> the whole idea of an affirmation yeah. is to affirm our ideas of happiness, that uh-huh. I am good enough, that I am kind enough, that I am strong enough, that I am enough. Uh-huh. So her definition of happiness. Anne Rand says, happiness is that state of mind, which is achieved by the attainment of one's own virtues or values. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we understand there is it's not a condition, it's a state of mind. That mm-hmm. We can arrive there, we can be happy in a Siberian jail, mm-hmm. we can be happy in a farm in Taft, 
mm -hmm. vegetables every day, or we can be happy living in New York City in a 400 square foot flat with three other roommates. Mm -hmm. So it's a state of mind. Mm -hmm. But then that state of mind is produced not by just anything, but by attaining your virtues or your values. So our entire life is spent getting to know ourselves. Physician, heal thyself. Mm -hmm. Get to know yourself. It's been the most difficult thing we ever do. Mm -hmm. and we'll never be done doing it. Mm -hmm. Like you said, which of this is me? Which of this is someone else? Mm -hmm. well, it's all someone else. Mm -hmm. And it's all you. Mm -hmm. Every single one of us is a summation of the people we meet, the books mm -hmm. we read, which is the philosophical ideas and our relationships. So if we know that, then what we should be doing on a regular basis is figuring out what our virtues and our values are. And mm -hmm. whatever they are, that's the stuff we should be writing in our journals. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I believe are right. And one of those things might be extroverted. One of mm -hmm. those might be introverted at times. We're definitely not one or the other. And I think you mentioned in politics, just, you know, I both ran, um, you can get a lot of something and it becomes too much of something. Mm -hmm. And then you veer and it could be years of veering mm -hmm. away from whatever that was yeah. before you recognize that that was what made you what you are today. Uh -huh. We talked about roots and we talked about plants. No one wants the root. Everyone wants the plant. Everyone mm -hmm. really wants the fruit, the flower. Mm -hmm. But every single one of those is important. Every part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, that's interesting that you say veering off because I think that there's a huge part of me that is veering off from... I became people shy for years. Yeah. And after I ran for office, I really just did not want to be around people. For I still, to this day, have a hard time being around large groups of people. Uh -huh. It's not quite agoraphobia. I just feel like it's just too much. Uh huh. It's and, too much. And it, and it wasn't that way before. It was. Right. It was being exposed to so many people, being judged, being uh -huh. analyzed, being uh -huh. seen by so many people. After a while, you don't want to be seen. I don't want to be seen by a few people. I don't yeah. want to be seen by one person. That would be yeah. ideal. Yeah. Everyone else can get bits and pieces. That's Facebook. But yeah. I want to be seen. I want to be understood. Yeah. By just one person. Yeah. I would love to be seen or understood by one person. Like, really. <laughs> part, part of happiness. Yeah. yeah, that would be really nice. I would appreciate that. So you live on an urban farm. That's what I would call what you live on. You live on an acre? Half an acre. Half an acre, but in Corpus Christi and you actually have a farm. I mean, in Corpus Christi. I'm so impressed. Yeah, dead center of the city. And to be perfectly fair, you know, obviously most of the stuff isn't even legal for city code limits. Yes. <laughs> so for, for all intents and purposes, uh -huh. I have two places where I live, uh -huh. a place where I have my goats and pig and uh -huh. turtles and tortoises and rabbits and chickens. And mm -hmm. I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but yeah. But I, you I live in a part of town where it's kind of a little bit expected that people yeah. have that. So yeah. everybody kind of ignores it a little oh, bit. I've seen cows yeah. walking down the street. Yeah. I've seen people walking their goats. I, everyone has ducks around me. Uh -huh. I, I gave away my roosters because they made too much noise. Now all my neighbors have roosters. Uh -huh. I fear as long as I give my neighbors eggs and I can get away <laughs> yeah. with anything. Yeah. I like that. And I mean, the way we met at the very beginning of Grow Local for me, and you invited me to come speak at you and someone else invited me to come speak at a um, libertarian uh, group, right? Libertarian caucus group, and Republican, Republican Liberty Caucus. There you go. What I loved about that was, in all honesty, it was probably one of the first times where I began to go, "Yeah, these people talk about the stuff that I actually like." I, I never. I always kind of felt like I was just out there on a limb, you know, all by myself. Because I voted for just completely people that were off the wall. Like I hardly ever voted for the party line either party. Um, not to say I never did, but I hardly did. And one of the biggest things that I discovered 
in the early days of the Grow Local movement was that uh, the way I believed about land and rights on your land and making money on the land you own was very libertarian in the way I was thinking. And I, but I, I grew up thinking I was very liberal because I wanted to color my hair and wear tattoos and I was having a problem with the church at the time, you know, and you're absolutely right. That is actually the definition of being liberal, which is why it's so strange that those two terms have kind of mm -hmm. become juxtaposed. Um, what I recognized, I believe, and what made me think that you kind of belong to our tribe, our group, was the fact that you were liberal, the fact that you believed in limited government, that mm -hmm. government should not be status, should not be totalitarian, that it should be minuscule in size, that you should be able to carry your backpack, I'm sorry, your government in your backpack, uh -huh. it doesn't become overwhelming, that I knew that you believed in individual liberty, that as long uh -huh. as we weren't hurting anybody else, we should be able to paint, color our, our hair pink, right. yeah. we should be able to do whatever it is that we choose to do as long as we're not doing harm to someone else, yeah. and that we both believed in economic freedom, that we yeah. believed that people should be able to, to uh, associate, trade with other individuals without that being um, limited or uh, whatever the case might be, shortened in any way by anybody else. So those mm -hmm. three things were enough of a core for me to recognize that if you came and spoke to our group, that those, we, we would recognize that mm -hmm. that's kinship. Yeah. Political kinship. Yeah. And that, that was important because I think that it really helped me. And then of course, as I went further along with grow local and began to really like fight with the government over things, local government, but state government too, but fight with the government over things and, and win because we tended to have a, state government, not, not necessarily a local government. Local government was because if you push hard on something that actually matters to you, that isn't about, um, some of the snake snakery they're generally doing, basically, if they don't care about it, then if you push hard enough, you're going to win. <laughs> That's, you know, so lo local government's a little bit different, but when it came to state government, I found that our state tended to be in favor of individuals within the state of Texas, having the rights to do what is right for them to do. But then I also run into regularly how often the state decides other. See, my thing is, it's funny that I, I'm not surprised that we go down this path actually, because you know, it's you and me more, you have no moral, you have no right to legislate morality. That's the standard for me. someone else. That's a matter of perspective of how it harms someone else. And so if you get to like, so, so to me, that's what it always came down to. And if I could look at any law and say, that's a moral judgment, then you as the, the government don't have the right to make a moral judgment. And there's so many of our laws currently that are about moral judgments. And that's where I get angry about a lot of the things that we're doing. Well, now I'm getting angry because now we're starting to do things that are way beyond that because we're, we're outright, we're not even making moral judgments anymore. We're just using morality to convince you to, to vote for something that ultimately hurting the people and helping the government. Yeah. Or to wear a mask or take a vaccination. I mean, you could take it any direction uh -huh. you want that, like you said, harm is very subjective. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you mean? You harm my feelings right. or do you mean harm my truck or do you mean harm my person? Right. Maybe a combination of those things to some degree. Right. But the problem is we are all too feeling right now that, that mm -hmm. we were able to think that we can judge people's morality and that we can regulate people's morality based on them hurting our feelings. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that's just, uh, I don't know if it's a modern thing in politics or it's just something that's become more prevalent in the last few years. 
but I, I'm specifically talking about somebody that literally treads on you. Mm-hmm. Treading is not a passive action. Treading mm-hmm. requires actual boots mm-hmm. on your back and it hurts and it's a physical action that does you harm that mm-hmm. it doesn't just make you feel uncomfortable we have mm-hmm. something for that we've already you know we've got the first amendment we've got the constitution and mm-hmm. we're talking somebody that literally transgresses against your body or property mm-hmm. yeah not your mind yeah and and nowadays with social media we know that there was one president that was the first big social media pusher in a local government i was really probably the first local government person that pushed social media super hard um then of course at that at that same year of election was when everybody went that way and now you've got an entire generation that only knows what they're being sold in an algorithm right and so this is the children that I've raised. You two, you've got Ava and, and what's your oldest son? Richard. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're in that same like, you know, bracket of um, which, what's the algorithm selling you today um, that you need to understand, that you don't understand. But I mean, at the same time, I think that I was very naive when I was, you know, 18. And my first vote was what my parents voted. But then my second vote was literally the opposite because I don't agree with them on anything. And I have no idea why I ever would have voted with them to begin with, you know. And then over the years, it has been wildly random and then gotten more. And now I'm to the point where, like like you said, veering completely away from it, where I'm just like, I am a slave to a corporation that I have no rights in anymore. And why would I vote for any of that shit anymore? And I just have that feeling about me, which I'd never had that feelings before. I was always like, we're of the generation that we're still of the generations that vote, vote to make the change, you know? And I'm like, what the fuck difference does it make? (laughs) Like really, what the fuck difference does it make? I guess the most important social action that we can take is for us to be unabashedly and unapologetically ourselves. It is to take up a stand and to say, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter if there is a corporation or individual or if it's Republican or if it's Democrat or libertarian or conservative or liberal, but that we have that, that value and that virtue that we've understood to be ourselves and that we continually espouse that. And I think social media is fantastic because it gives us that option more so than ever before to have a megaphone. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt about that. Like, I don't even have to go down the same paths that I went down before because I'm making my voice very clear uh, uh, the best I know how. Let's put it that way. I may not be as clear as I think I am, but I'm voicing what I believe is important to me. And I think that voicing those things, like, I think that if I look at a law or legislation or, um, let's say, uh, a particular um, candidate, um, and I value that person, I value what they're saying, I value that law, I value, then my vote matters because I just put it into the ether. The problem is, is that I've found even in my own self that in the recent years, I've just been voting for people because I had to vote for somebody. And that has messed me up. Like that, I, I I can't do that anymore. And so I have to figure out how I move forward into the next elections now with a complete. So I don't always ask, but I thought because you're farming and doing this stuff that you're doing, farming, urban farming, small scale farming, you're gardening, you're learning how to garden at this point. It was, is that, that's probably a better, a fairer way to say it. (laughs) My, My first garden when I was 12 years old, my parents said I could either have a pond 
or I could have a garden. Uh -huh. So I had a garden. And when I was 13, they said I could either have a pond or I could go to Hazel Baysmore for the day. So I had a pond. Uh -huh. When I was 14, I went to Hazel Baysmore for the day. So yeah. I, long story short, I've had a garden ever since I was 12, just on and off into different degrees, never as much as during the uh, pandemic. Uh huh. I was basically sent home for two or three months. And that's, <laughs> right. that's when I was learning how to garden. And what was that, 2020? Yeah, 2020. Everything yeah. after that has been leading up to it. This is just the most space I've ever had to garden. Uh huh. So I thought, okay, well, let's, you know, what, do you have an idea of something I even thought? How, do you hunt? I was curious about like meat wise, like you'd be like, I hunt, I fish, I brought this thing. I, you know? I would say I do. I just haven't in a while. Yeah. And not enough that I've got, I've got some stuff in the freezer, but yeah. Yeah. So your suggestion was your grandmother's pollo con calabazas recipe. Is that mm -hmm. basically what you were? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I was like, oh, that's great. Do you have squash? No, no, nobody has squash right now. And we had just made that. So I'd actually would love to compare. I would love to have your grandmother's recipe to give it a try and, you know, give it some comparison. But instead you were like, no, let's do something different. And I had a huge bag full of eggplants and I had some wild pork. And so we made an Asian dish tonight that um, I actually thought was really good. I kind of chowed down on it. Paleo Chinese eggplant and garlic sauce. Still trying really hard. I mean, I'm eating some cheese. I'm eating some rice. I'm eating some nuts and legumes. I'm eating all my vegetables pretty much like that was the thing I wanted to get back to after I did the elimination diet, put everything back in. I wanted to get back to eggs and I wanted to get back to all my vegetables that were growing out of the garden and the rest of this stuff, like the dairy, the rice, you know, all of that's really kind of unnecessary. Um, the dairy is definitely unnecessary. And so I've been trying to still stick with it as much as I can. Um, and so that's why I went with a paleo. Uh, version of it, which was the eggplants. And then we used uh, olive oil. You actually brought me, I don't think we used that olive oil. Oh, no, we did on the salad. We used on the salad. the salad. Yeah. So uh, Texas Hill Country Olive Oil. Texas Hill Country Olive Oil Company. Yes. And they're in Dripping Springs, right? Just outside. Mm -hmm. Yes. I have been to that place before. And apparently they have the best olive oil press in the state of Texas. I'm sure it's in a matter of opinion, but a lot of people have the same opinion. Yes. Yeah. A lot of people have the same opinion. About them? Or, about them, oh, yes. Okay, good. About it being an excellent olive oil. Yeah. It's um, very well rated and, and no one tries it against another olive oil and doesn't recognize the difference. We always think we know something, like we know milk uh -huh. until we try whole milk. Uh -huh. We know eggs until we try a chicken egg from your chickens. And right. And you realize I had no idea. What they taste like. And it was like, olive yeah. oil for me just a few yeah. years ago when I first tried it by yeah. itself, just sampling olive oil, which, yeah. you know, who in the world would even think to do that otherwise. But when I did versus normal olive oil, it was, and you could taste. Yeah. Something was not right in the other olive oils. Uh-huh. Like yeah. It was somehow or another. Yeah. Yeah. And so their stuff is really, really good. And I was thankful. I mean, that not show up with a bottle of wine and a, um, a badass olive oil. That's, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. So we use that, um, olive oil. We used it in the salad. We didn't use it in the recipe, but I used olive oil. The recipe calls for avocado oil. You guys know that I'm steering clear of avocados still. They seem to still be making me sick somehow, which is weird. Cause I ate avocados like crazy all of my life maybe I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say like you eat something until your body gets sick of it. I don't think it works like I think, that. I think physiology changes. Possibly. I think some people yeah. get allergic to something after a yeah. while. You know, it's just strange how our bodies change. I, didn't we use coconut oil? We used. Because that was the sweet 
or, yeah, yeah. or maybe oh. it was the coconut aminos. Yeah, yeah, we used coconut aminos for sure. So maybe, um, maybe not the olive oil, but it, I feel like there was something that was semi-sweet. There was. It, we thought it was that. And then the ground pork, of course, salt, pepper, lots of garlic, and we used. It called for Chinese dry red chilies, but we used some of my uh, red pepper flakes that I've already made myself, dehydrated and and ground up. And so that's the main ingredients of the saute or the stir fry. And then you made a sauce, we made a sauce that had the coconut aminos, like you mentioned, the balsamic vinegar. Um, I have some really good chicken stock right now, like that really thick gooey chicken stock that's made well. And we used some of the red wine vinegar here from the farm and that as well. And then you use arrowroot starch and water instead of using like a corn starch, which makes it a little bit thicker. I cooked it over the top of some grain-free noodles, Jovial brand grain-free spaghetti noodles. I thought the recipe was great. It was a little bit spicy. It was a little bit sweet. I loved the pork. I love eggplant. So it was fantastic for me. What, what were your, what did you think? And honeydew. Oh yeah, yeah. From my garden too. Yeah, yeah. just harvested off today. So, and then a beautiful salad that had some tomatoes, my ugly tomatoes, but some tomatoes, some of the onions, some of the peppers. There was some red onions, scallions. Pretty much the only major ingredient that we used that was not directly from the garden or from a naturally sourced thing was um, the greens. Yeah, arugula and spinach. spinach would, yeah, technically we could have done that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I could have gone out and got some stuff. Maldivar, spinach, uh -huh. Yeah, and the um, uh, the sweet potato greens. As I'm just in love with arugula. Like I would eat, I, I eat arugula every day in my eggs or whatever. I actually ate some Swiss chard in my eggs today when I ate a little bit earlier. I was really looking forward to getting eggs back in my diet. You eat a lot of eggs too, though. Daily. Anything else? I mean, how, how have your gardens been going on your in this last year with the heat, with the, what we talked a lot about, the water? How has that been going for you? So we're what, zone 9B? 9B, yep. yeah. I would say anybody that's in zone 9B is going through exactly the same things that we're going through right now. And mm -hmm. it's pretty much a common summer malady. Mm -hmm. So we're just dealing with the heat and the drought. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's the same situation. Some things are surviving. Some things are actually kind of thriving. Some things are dying out and kind of feel like they should. Mm -hmm. So we don't try to keep anything on life support for too long. Because right. we know eventually we're going to lose. Yeah. I mean, I could try to keep a broccoli plant alive, but it's not going to keep no. on producing. And it's not going to come back. Even, yeah. You know, it, the really only things that you want to try to push through, like you said, the okra, the pepper plants, if they mm -hmm. can make it to the other side, mm -hmm. then the, you've got another two or three months with them. I want to keep my tomato plants alive, honestly. If I can keep my tomato plants because as soon as our temperatures drop, well, tomatoes and the peppers for that matter, as soon as our temperatures start to drop in the fall, I get the bumper crop, the mm -hmm. second um, rotation of it. Whereas if I put in a new tomato plant, as soon as the temperatures start to drop, I may or may not actually get, I may only get green tomatoes on it, which almost every year you get that freeze. And this year, the freeze right before Christmas meant we got a lot of green tomatoes, but that was... Well, this is the first year I put in a greenhouse. Uh -huh. Got a really nice greenhouse. I only put in a few months ago, about 12 by 14 and pretty tall. I haven't put shelves in it yet. Right now, I can't put anything in it because it's not like yours that's open. Uh -huh. and you've just got a shade cloth and the wind passes straight yep. through. It's an actual greenhouse, yep. greenhouse with panels. So if it's 105 degrees outside, mm -hmm. it's about 125 in uh -huh. there at least. I think that would be perfect for starting things that'll last at least another month or two that should have died in December or January, but they're still going to make it all the way through. Mm -hmm. Gardening, growing food in South Texas, in this region of 9B is definitely a, it's a labor of love. 
more shade, more mulch, more irrigation, mm -hmm. and more... Um, Keeping plants in the ground. Like live, that's why I leave those sunflowers in, even though they look like crap. Companions. Yeah, they, and the, and the root down in the ground just keeps more moisture. I can tell you like immediately when I weed a row, it just turns to dust. But before that, before I weeded it or when I was weeding it, there was actually still moisture in there. I, um, when we went out up front to, and you were like, you're, you haven't, I hadn't watered that area in two weeks and you could tell no weeding had happened. You know, it just, but then in other places where the plants had died back, it was just complete. So I don't know. I, I appreciate, I, I think I've learned a lot over the years and I think that I'm really good at, um, leaning on nature. Like you were talking about reseeding and seeing wildflowers reseed that you didn't even know you'd planted. And now you're a year later, you'll see a completely different. That's one of my most favorite things about all of what's happening out here. Um, I mentioned that the grass in the front, I see a different grass with a different kind of flower on it, like every month, all year long. And that's really good biodiversity. And that's what you're going to want to see eventually is just all year long, you're going to see different plants that come and go and they have their season. The celosia and amaranth and all that stuff, it grows this time of year when I need that stuff to grow. It doesn't grow other times of year when I don't need that stuff to grow. So it's that's that's a timing that you're looking for. That's what regenerative and permaculture and all that stuff is to me, the most important part of it is allowing things to let humans get involved, but don't let humans get in the way of what nature does better than we do. I saw Oppenheimer last weekend. I was excited to see it. Uh, Christopher Nolan, great director, happy to know that he had produced it. Saw that it was three hours long. That's always a bit of an issue for me because you have the patience for watching a three-hour movie like is that absolutely not yeah so. yeah no i was i watched it with a buddy of mine and i found myself just tapping my fingers off the top of the table the entire time and like running cords up and down my leg uh -huh. i'm mean, just not the type that i can sit down for that long i have way too much adhd Dude. which is strange because i like to read but yeah reading is a very slow thing yeah that that i can guarantee you i had that issue during that movie so actually i i felt like i learned more about oppenheimer and i felt more about oppenheimer in a book that i read about oppenheimer uh -huh. approximately 10 years ago what was that and called that one, i don't remember i tried googling it again i just remember reading about it and it was semi-fictional it wasn't it was it, they took a little bit of license with the story uh -huh. but it, it talk, talked about the new mexico tests and all those uh -huh. things along those lines and i just remember that that was the first time that i had read about that situation about the atomic bomb and about how it was dropped and the mm -hmm. repercussions on the individuals here in America as well as around the world and specifically in Japan. So it took it from a, a number of vignettes of different sides and different stories. Uh -huh. And we know that books, though they're nowhere near as entertaining visually mm -hmm. as a movie is, they can be a lot more introspective. Mm -hmm. You can think a lot more during mm -hmm. a book and you can read other people's thoughts a lot more. And it gave you I think a clearer idea of the moral conundrums mm -hmm. that he was going through. You you sensed the anguish mm -hmm. in the movie, but mm -hmm. you were not subtitled to his mind. Mm -hmm. You ultimately didn't know where his conscience pulled in or pulled out. Mm -hmm. and as amazing of an actor as it was, I still feel like, for me, I, I feel like I, I gleaned a lot from the book because mm -hmm. it's such a thought provocative, um, thought provoking idea as to whether or not we should have overwhelming force. 
Well, there's so much. There's a couple of things that made me think about that. Number one, the book that I'm reading right now is American Prometheus, which is about Oppenheimer, but it was about, it's a biography story, uh, but it, I forget what the rest of the title is. It's American Pre Prometheus something, whatever. And in the movie, they refer to him as Prometheus and like that he's the Prometheus, right? And so I guess that's kind of where it came from was that this person had already written this book and called him the American Prometheus. And the thing with me and the, the, the movie and what I love most about whether it's a book or a movie or anything, movies often do this to me. And that is, I never really thought, I never didn't think that I had as much interest in something as I have. And then I watch a movie and then I'm like, oh my God, I have to read every book that has anything to do with it. Because now I've realized that little glimpses of thought about having the power of atomic bomb is a big deal. You know, the things you get taught in school about Hiroshima and was it morally correct or not? And, you know, you don't really, you don't really have a strong, I don't think you have a real strong feeling about it outside of the fact that there clearly was something that happened there that we made decisions about, but then it's come up in kind of the ether of things that I pay attention to about the idea that like the human wasn't ready for that kind of science or math or understanding yet, which that starts to go into what I loved. What I would say is, is that this particular story hits everything that I am so interested in, in life. The idea that quantum theory is now quantum physics, quantum theory, all of those things are actually like legitimate conversations now. They're not just theory anymore, you know, that side of things. I have been an Albert Einstein fan for 20 years, probably 30 years, really read many of his books and things and articles and tried to understand, even though I oftentimes couldn't understand a lot of what I was reading, wanted so badly, you know, to get that type of information, um, moral understandings about things, um, just, just everything about what that movie went into was all the things that I care about. The idea that, okay, then you take it back. Like what's his, what's his face? Um, uh, Tesla, right? So you have these people that had these understandings about things long before, long before the general mass or even a general population of let's say scientists or the, 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 the higher intellect was even understanding it. These people had these pieces of information with many, many years before, where did they get it from? How, and why don't we all have? And so then that leads me back into my understanding of like the threads that run through us all from the beginning of time that we're all a part of the same, you know, radical wholeness or whatever you want to call it. And so I think that that's been a huge part of why I was so interested in Einstein. And then this idea that like this man had access to something that we weren't consciously prepared for yet. And I think Tesla had that same kind of ability, you know, like where did they get it from? How did they do that? Sir Isaac Newton said the only reason that we have seen so far is because we've stood upon the shoulders of giants. Uh-huh. So maybe it was because he had taken something before, you know, it showed that he was a friend with Albert Einstein, that the theory had already been suggested in some way. We talked earlier that no knowledge is new. Uh-huh. Right. He wasn't the first person to come up with this. He discovered yeah. this. Yeah. When we talk about theories and it's no longer a theory, now it's this, now it's accepted. Uh -huh. That doesn't mean anything. 
Uh-huh. It's still a theory. Uh-huh. It just is accepted right now. It's an accepted theory. Uh-huh. I could go as far as to say the law of gravity uh-huh. is a very accepted theory, uh-huh. but it's still a theory. Uh-huh. We, we, are, we are kind to it and we call it a law, but uh-huh. that implies that it will indefinitely and always be exactly the way that we see it. Uh-huh. And we know that it's not that because everything is colored through our perception. And if we know that, and if we know that Oppenheimer was just rediscovering things uh-huh. and then uncovering truths, whenever we hear something that makes sense, like quantum theory, it twings that string in our brain and something in us goes, wait, that I recognize that as truth. It sounds right. Uh-huh. It sounds like if you didn't remember your name and someone went suddenly in a shopping center, called out your name, Aislinn. And you turned around, even though you didn't memorize uh-huh. your own name or knew your own name because of amnesia or whatever uh-huh. it might be, you'd recognize that. And I think that's what we, we saw in that movie. And what was so exciting about it is that we, we recognized the truth that he was discovering. Uh-huh. I always wonder, what is it about some people? What is it about a level of, I, I always want to say like consciousness. What, what is it about some people that we have those twinges? You know, that movie made me go, yeah, why? Why is it that some of us have that? Is it because we've read more? Is it because, what is it? Like, are we old soul? Like, what? what's the, like, ah. Like, it, could be, it could be a reincarnation, uh-huh. could be a version of that. We recognize truth that we've heard before, even if it was in another life. Uh, saw that movie Limitless the other day, and they talk about the idea that we only use maybe 10% of our brains. Uh-huh. So maybe subconsciously the rest of our brain is being used. Uh-huh. Every single name we've ever heard, every single word we've ever read uh-huh. is in our brain. Uh-huh. And somewhere it's in there, we just can't reach it. Uh-huh. Some people are different. Um, we mentioned, uh, I did ADHD earlier. You know, I think a lot of us would be, have been diagnosed with ADHD <laughs> yeah. when we were younger. My mom said, you know, if I had known about it, you'd be on it. I just yeah. didn't know about it back then because nobody did. Yeah. But maybe ADHD is the superpower. Uh-huh. Maybe Einstein has the superpower. Maybe Oppenheimer has the superpower that rather than thinking that geniuses are aberrant, that maybe we recognize that they have a perception of truth that no one else can. Mm-hmm. We all see in color, but we don't recognize that color. Uh-huh. They recognize one color that we don't see. Uh huh. Yeah. I think that, um, that was the way I used to always think about, um, autism. Anytime mm-hmm. anyone would say, cause in the beginning stages of autism, it was always like their special needs to me. It was like, no, I think they know something we don't know. I, I feel like they can hear something perceive, we can't hear. Perceive something we don't perceive. Yeah. Perceive something we don't know. They don't even know they know it. Right. They're just taking okay. in something and they're talking about it. And for the rest of us, it's like, what? Uh-huh. But or or we recognize the uh-huh. truth, but we could never say it, and we couldn't spot it. Uh-huh. But maybe none of us have that we know of have the capacity to be Einstein. But some of us recognize Einstein. And not yeah. saying I do in particular. I'm just saying that some people do. Well, and and one of the things that the movie got me thinking about was like, how did I get so turned away from math at such a young age? And I think it has to do. This is part of part of the problem I have with the. Um, American school system is that in the nineties, females didn't do math. Like we weren't intelligent enough to do math. We couldn't process math, you know? So then of course in the two thousands, there was the STEM and then we had to get women in math because no, there weren't any women in math and science because we'd all been run off as if we weren't intelligent enough to do math or science. And I was one of those kids that went to special camps for math and science. But because they'd already taught me that I wasn't any good at math, 
I just acted like a bored teenager in math class and didn't pay attention. But physics is how my brain processes things. When I listen to people talk about physics, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly, but I don't know the math, right? So when I'm listening to some of these philosophers or some of these scientists that are geniuses that have these amazing ideas, talk about things, I can't always understand it because they're talking about numbers and paths and scales and all kinds of things that I can't understand what they're saying. But I, but I have this, like you said, a twinge, like a, a string that's being plucked. That's like something about that feels right. But I honestly didn't figure that out about myself until I got my hands in the dirt. And that's kind of everything about me. I wish I could, I wish I could understand me the way I understand what is happening in the dirt when I dig my hands in the dirt and what that teaches me, which is essentially what I have been trying to say as the most important thing of everything I've been saying, not eat vegetables. Okay. Eat vegetables. Your mom teaches you that, right? We can learn things out here and these special kids that are not learning very well in other traditional classrooms, learn things better with their hands in the dirt. We learn to read better. We learn math better. We learn, we, we can embody things in a different way. And so that's been a big part of me trying to get it into school systems, but it doesn't really work. Like it still doesn't work like that. I still don't see outside of very, very rare circumstances of like homeschooling and things like that. Do I see people that are sharing that kind of ability for people to learn with their hands in the dirt. Public schooling is all about conformity. <laughs> That's yes, it is. It's the understatement of the year. That's <laughs> literally the entire purpose. The the cra the crash of every system that exists. That's the one that I have been cursing for the longest by the way, the school, the public school system. It, that that's the one that I came out of it going, yeah, that's shit. What are they doing over there? We're all being slowed down to the speed of the slowest individual. Yeah, the lowest common denominator. Every law, every rule, every it, it I told somebody the other day, "Oh, you can thank zero tolerance policy for that." That's a thing that doesn't that makes perfect sense that you're trying to suggest that be done, but because of zero tolerance policy, we can't do things like that because there's one person in the crowd that can't handle that. And if there's one person in the crowd, can't you have to have zero people in the crowd that are doing that? And when, and cause zero tolerance policy didn't become a thing until I think right about the point where my kids were starting to enter school. And I was like, oh, we done fucked it up now. Like for real, it's a done deal. If we have a zero tolerance policy, that means that we're going to constantly be lowering ourselves to the lowest common denominator at every step of the way. Um, and I think that I feel like that's, if I had to say one thing, I'm a huge, I'm a huge supporter of the generation that my kids are. I think that they have an extreme interesting intelligence that they are, that they have a, they have a special job to come and fix and deal and whatever. But at the same time, the, the things that they're being sold are at the baseline of zero tolerance policy. I think they have another huge disadvantage. I'm assuming when you say the age your kids are, you mean approximately late teens, uh, early twenties kind of thing? Yeah. Cortland is 23. He would be at the oldest edge of that generation. Yeah. So early matriculation. I think the biggest disadvantage that these kids have is electronics. Mm, yeah. Electronics makes us distant from people. 
makes us distant from experiences. It makes mm -hmm. us distant from books. It makes us distant from ideas. Ultimately, even though we're being flooded with ideas, we're being flooded with the ideas that we're supposed to be flooded with. Like the you ones said, you're algorithms, told. Yeah. Algorithms. Uh -huh. If it doesn't show up in the algorithm, then it's not an idea that you may necessarily hear uh -huh. or see. It may have been shelved long ago. One of the things about reading old books is you're reading old ideas. Mm -hmm. No one brings those up anymore because it's already been put away. It's already been cataloged. Mm -hmm. It's defunct in a sense. I've been saying this a lot lately. There's certain things that we're just like, excuse my French, you guys, but that we're just jacking off when we talk about and that like AI, right? Mm -hmm. The shit's already been done, right? And so I think about that when I think about, you know, okay, well, this generation having the technology that they have, well, they, they were never going to be without that technology and this is what they have. So now what? Right. Because it's already the consequences are the consequences are already coming. Yeah. So what do we do with kids that have that, you know, in today's world? Because that's the way we have to live with it. Kind of like, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to be friendly with AI because AI already exists. It's, it's already the same happening. question about anything that we've ever had introduced in our lives or in our culture. It's whether or not it's going to be our servant or going to be our master. Mm -hmm. Can we turn electronics into a tool mm -hmm. or is electronics going to turn us into tools? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing is that since people are malleable at that age, mm -hmm. I think that it's just easy. It's you know, just because the world is flooded with chocolate doesn't mean we should say, you know what? Chocolate's the new reality. Now we got to eat the chocolate. Mm -hmm. We still don't have to eat the chocolate. Mm -hmm. You can still take chocolate in moderation like you take all things. Mm -hmm. We haven't figured out moderation with electronics because it hasn't given us a chance to. Right. No one consults a dictionary so we don't get to know how to spell things. We uh -huh. don't have to. We don't have to learn how to spell things because we can spell check yeah. because we can Google. Yeah. We have so much at our fingertips that we have nothing at our fingertips. We haven't taught ourselves to memorize things. Mm -hmm. We don't have to memorize numbers. Mm -mm. We don't have to memorize anything. Mm -hmm. Like for Everything now is at our fingertips, and that is a, an enormous disadvantage because if you think about someone who's not forced to strive, then you think of someone who's not forced to grow. Mm -hmm. So we have to I, – I think what we have to teach our, our – kids now at this age is that it's a tool. It's a very limited tool and that it's easy to become. In fact, I would say it's almost natural for us to become dependent upon it. Mm -hmm. I think Oppenheimer, I think one of the things that interests me was the moral question that came out of it mm -hmm. is just because we could, should mm -hmm. we? And should any group or any government have the power to decide what's best for the entire world? Mm -hmm. And to have that kind of power, you know, we mentioned at the very beginning, limited government mm -hmm. isn't by very definition, the power to destroy the world through an atomic bomb, the opposite of a limited government Absolutely, is the most powerful government there is. It's whenever yeah. absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, I think the third act of the movie, the mm -hmm. third act, the yeah. third hour of the movie yeah. was essentially about that fight that he supposedly, I don't know how much of that is the truth and which is their, their story that they made up. Victor's right. The story. Yeah. Right. History is written by the winners. Of, yeah, right. He is telling. They're telling the story about how the government abused him, and that would that would have been one of the other things persecuted. that I would say persecuted. Yeah, um, went after him Vilified, because he was trying to say that that we need to think about this, what we've created here. Well, you can't. The, I, I felt like there was an element of like, well, you can't because you already. And I think that that's a lot of what I feel right now is, um, oh, because you acted like this when you were 17, you can't have a different opinion now in the public eye. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right? You let like, the I changed my mind yesterday. You let the horse out of the stable. You can't decide that it needs to go back in the stable. Sure uh-huh. you can. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Certain things like that. Isn't like, that what like maturity is? Yeah. Just because you've gone down a wrong path. I think of, when I think of the global aspect of the atomic bomb, I think of a slightly more... Um, specific application, and that was the treatment of American Indians. Uh-huh. That we decided that it was best for the for the civilization, for the whole, uh-huh. for uh, for us to subjugate them in a certain way, to control them in a way that they were no longer violent for the the majority of us. Uh-huh. You know, where they say democracy is um, three wolves and a sheep deciding, voting for what's for dinner. Uh-huh. So basically, they with the, uh-huh. the American government decided for the the world mm-hmm. what was best for dinner. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier the book, American Prometheus, and um, I haven't read the book, so I, I can't speak intelligently about that at all. But what it, it, I was thinking that you were referring to was the American Prometheus, mm-hmm. which is what the book was all written about, Oppenheimer. So I kind of gathered that mm-hmm. and inferred that that's what it was. I think when we think of Prometheus as bringing the fire down from heavens um, and giving it to man, it was perceived as a gift. Uh-huh. That he was giving a gift that the gods didn't want man to have because man shouldn't have that much power. Uh-huh. And we think of a lot of biblical stories like that too. Uh-huh. The power to know good and evil. Uh-huh. Whenever we picked the apple in the garden, you know, the poisonous fruit. Mm-hmm. The p- problem was that we weren't supposed to have that much knowledge. Look uh-huh. at the Tower of Babel. Babel was a consequence of people having too much knowledge, getting too close to the heavens, threatening divinity in some sense, only in their, their own... Um, uh, human supremacy in their own mind. Uh-huh. So in every single instance that's been reduced. But the problem is or where I think the analogy falls apart is that we view fire as a general blessing, even though it can be one of the most destructive forces on earth, mm-hmm. that we absolutely need it to survive for most of the world because it's mm-hmm. cold out there mm-hmm. and we need to eat and mm-hmm. you know food and clearing and all the other great things that fire does but only because we've gotten past a point where fire destroys us. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately what fire does. Fire mm-hmm. wins. And if the atomic bomb is the fire and Oppenheimer brought it down to us, like you said before, we're really only rediscovering these things. Mm-hmm. He brought the fire down to earth and the fire is what destroyed the earth. Mm-hmm. And you will can't we... put that genie back in a bottle. You put the horse back in the stable, but you can't put that genie back in the bottle. I mean, we're what... 60 or 70 years from that from that uh, atomic bomb. And there are far more opportunities to use it than there were ever before. And, and if we do it point. once, we're done because everybody will do it. Mutually assured destruction. Uh-huh. It's a mad, mad world after all. Some days I wish that I could set the whole world on fire. I'm a fire starter, man. Like I'm, I'm on fire. And when I feel um, angry, sad, uh, I desire fire. Um, I just have this weird, like, so it's been, it's fascinating to me that, that, that like, there's so much of me that is illuminated by this conversation and that fire is a huge point of it. And that I have spent an entire lifetime trying to calm the fires, go to the water, get in the dirt, get in the earth, calm the fires, calm the fires. Maybe there's a level of um, this phase of consciousness of us that's un- that's beginning to understand um, the power that we have. Whether we're in, in whether I'm in a phase, I'm just going to talk about myself. I can't tell whether I'm in a, a lifetime of just constant destruction or whether it's a balance of passion. 
Do you know why um, humans are drawn to fire? Do you know why we we watch the fire? I've read, and I think a, kind of a, a deeper meaning in this too, is that the pattern of flames is never the same. It's unpredictable. Uh-huh. That we're not following the same motion like a circle uh-huh. over and over again. No one watches a circle forever. It's boring as heck after 30 seconds. Uh-huh. The fire is unique in that there is no discernible pattern. That we could watch hours of fire and there's uh-huh. always a different pattern in the flames. Uh-huh. And I think that's part of what we find attractive to fire. Uh-huh. It's not just its destructiveness, but its uniqueness. Uh-huh. And if we recognize fire as passion in our lives, then uh-huh. basically it's creating different scenarios constantly in our life. A life on fire is not just hot. It's passionate because it's different. Uh-huh. Passion is never perceived as the same. Passion is always perceived as different. If you think of something that's the same, you think of mundane or you think of boring. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. If you think of different, you think of exciting. Uh-huh. Okay. So you're basically just describing like my desire, except that when I think about my greatest fear and now think about fire, right? You know, we're, we're, we're afraid of fire as much as we love fire. Uh-huh. It's the same thing. I'm afraid of myself. I'm afraid of this desire to be different, different, different. I mean, here I am in a position now to have a completely new fire, a completely new story, a completely new, everything looks completely different. And I am scared as hell of that power. And I think I have been my entire life and not knowing what to do with it. Yeah. Our greatest fear is not that we are not capable, it's that we are more capable than we've ever known. When someone said to me the other day, no, you're extremely intelligent And I was like, yeah, that's what scares the shit out of me. And what scares the shit out of me about it is, is that I don't even understand how intelligent I am. Like, first of all, because I was taught that I wasn't really as intelligent as I am by the school system. And then I believed it because why not be lazy and be a typical dumbass that doesn't care about anything? Um, Go off into the world of college and do more drugs than anything else, right? That's that's what we want you to do, you uneducated person that we uneducated. Rather, I'm extremely intelligent, and I couldn't for five seconds stay in that like dumbed down state because I didn't. It didn't work. Like I was constantly setting something on fire just to see what would happen to the dumbed down state of me. <laughs> like, I needed that craziness to happen so I could see what would happen. Like I just couldn't handle the dumb. It didn't, but, but then, but then I also don't understand what I understand. And I also don't, I don't always have a good way to express it. You know, I can't write it down. I can't, the only thing I feel extremely capable of today to do with the intelligence is to talk about it. That's it. Mm -hmm. I can't write about it that anyone will understand. I can't build something about it that anyone will understand because I wasn't taught how to do any of that stuff. And you're going to have more questions. That's the whole point. The greater the island of our knowledge, the larger the shore of our ignorance. The mm. more that we realize, the more we realize we don't. We don't know. Yeah. yeah. So the, the most passionate d- desire of a pyromaniac is for change. 
Uh-huh. He just wants something to be different. Uh-huh. Even if he has to destroy it, at least it's different. Yeah. I'm tired of destroying things, dude. I'm tired of setting things on fire just so I can see what it looks like when it burns. Yeah. I really am. <sighs> on that note, let's go into a random question because as if we didn't have enough like awesome things to talk about, we could... This will be fun. <laughs> Is it right to kill someone who committed murder? As an individual? Or as a government or as a group? Well, give me either, give me both or all of it. Yeah. So someone who's committed a murder, someone who's already done something wrong. In other words, there's no imminent danger. There's no uh, principle of self-defense mm-hmm. and you're not defending anyone else at that point. At that point, it becomes retribution. Mm-hmm. It becomes punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody might say that you're making the world a better place or a safer place. Like someone who kills a rattlesnake. It's not necessarily retribution or vengeance. You're just trying to make things better cleaner for somebody else. Um, Obviously, the first thing that comes to mind whenever we think of killing someone who committed murder is a vigilante. Mm -hmm. But even Batman didn't kill people that committed murder. In fact, that for most superheroes throughout all of our superhero comic past, we've always said that that was the bridge too far. Um, I watched The Untouchables the other night and Mm -hmm. Elliot Ness Mm -hmm. as the bad guy in his sights, the guy who killed Sean Connery and talks about it in explicit detail about his best friend, about how he killed him. Mm -hmm. And Elliot Ness has the opportunity to shoot him between the eyes. He's hanging from the building and he remembers something that Sean Connery told him earlier about that's not you. Mm -hmm. That's the difference between you and the bad guys is the Mm -hmm. bad guys think it's right to kill someone who committed murder. The uh-huh. bad guys think it's right to kill someone who transgressed against you in some way. Uh-huh. Good guys don't believe it's up to one individual to take the law or to take vengeance mm-hmm. or to take retribution into your own hands. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe that it's right to kill someone who committed murder. Mm-hmm. Later in the same movie, Elliot Ness pushes the guy off the building. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, I guess so I am the, <laughs> yeah. Actually, this particular thing is probably one of the first things I started coming out with that I didn't fit with the Republican party that I was raised in and that, you know, and then I looked at all the other things about me, like, uh, colored hair and tattoos and said, Oh, I must fit in this other category. Then this was probably it because it didn't make any sense to me. Minimally. Yes. And minimally the idea of hurricane. I don't know if you know the story of, uh, he got accused of, um, killing or raping or hurting a a female and he was a african-american uh boxer it was a big deal and um he got pointed at even though he didn't commit the crime and i knew that story uh from a bob dylan song you know i'd heard the song and then i went and looked it up and studied a little bit about hurricane probably across people that that actually didn't do the crime that we end up killing um, because I don't believe that I, I didn't trust the government that strongly. That was one of the things that I came out with and said, you know, I just, I can't agree with that. I guess it was the first time I began to understand that there was no straight line party thing for me. Like that just didn't work for me. However, think of it this way. So that we're discussing capital punishment. You're saying that a person who commits murder, if we were to go and, and kill them as a result, execute them, mm-hmm. what if we were wrong? What if the government got it wrong? Mm-hmm. That would be the absolute worst thing. Mm-hmm. Well, would that be the worst thing? Or would the worst thing be that we let somebody go who has a pattern of killing people like a serial killer mm-hmm. and is obviously going to continue doing the same thing? The middle ground is we don't let him go and we don't kill him. We incarcerate him mm-hmm. interminably and mm-hmm. as long as it takes. Well, the problem number one is that could be a mistake too. Right. We still have yeah. that wrong yeah. and it might never be rectified 50 years later. 
But the other issue is that we're taking care of somebody who is mm -hmm. basically a rabid animal at that point has a propensity towards killing. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about capital punishment for a person who killed one person. For the mm -hmm. most part, we're talking about people who have patterns mm -hmm. and they have behaviors that for whatever reason can't be drilled out of them, can't yeah. be rehabbed out of them. I could see both sides of it. Uh, is it right to kill someone individually? I don't believe it is. Is right. it right as a group of people to decide that somebody should not be around other people anymore and mm -hmm. that we don't want to take care of them also? And the Bible did talk about one of the oldest laws out there, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I think that I guess the best way for me to say it was, is that that was one of the first times that I became aware that I didn't understand. Most libertarians like that, don't like capital punishment. Yeah. For the same was, reason, it gives government too much power. Great way for me to say, okay, yeah, that's ultimately what I believe in. But at the other side of it is, is it, how do they get the right to make that decision? And, let, and what if they make a mistake and... Again, probably one of the first things that got me questioning straight party line of anything. Like, what is it that I really actually believe in? But I've gone back and forth on all kinds of things, really trying to understand what my actual values and virtues were. And it's never been about, oh, it was just this party line, which, but I didn't figure that fully out until I ran for office. Like I didn't. But can you see also that it's really not a question of what if we make a mistake, therefore we shouldn't kill people? for doing terrible, heinous things. It's more along the lines of our burden of proof is incorrect, mm -hmm. that that's the real problem. The mm -hmm. problem is the mistake that if we could be infallible with it and only kill people that did have a pattern and a future habit of killing other people. And we knew for a fact that they did kill this person, the question would be a lot easier. Yeah. The problem with you is if, if, it, if what, if we make a mistake, then the problem should be in rectifying the mistake figure mm -hmm. it out in our justice system mm -hmm. that we need to be able to have this level of proof so that we don't make any more mistakes. Because obviously we're ruling on people's lives day in and day out. Every single day someone goes up in front of a judge, huge decisions are being made. If it's yeah. not a life, I mean, sometimes it's 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Well, and here's the other side of it. I also have like very hmm, questionable by general society's opinions about life and death too. Like, I don't think in general, period, doesn't matter whether it's a group of people or a sin individual pe person that we have the right to kill somebody, period, right? But I also think life and death are not as valuable as I think, as we think they are too. I think, and that's the gardener side of me. We think we're more than we are. That's probably the best way to say it. So speaking of thinking you're awesome and I think you are. I would love for you to tell me more about your business and how people can get in touch with you. Very briefly. Um, so um, obviously the owner, broker and owner of Gomez Properties, it's going to be uh, 17 years in November. We're Corpus located, so I'm on Kane. It's my business office. Uh, um, the best way to reach us is simply Googling Gomez Properties. Our number is really easy to remember, 992-SALE. Um, if you ever want to start a conversation with me, my email is very easy to remember. It's rick at rickgomez.com. I invite friend requests on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I'll delete somebody that I don't like very much so I can add somebody else. <laughs> so just let me know. I'm sure I can find someone that's been irritating me lately. <laughs> I'll, I'll create a vacancy. So I think that would be the best way. I like having discussions with almost everybody about almost everything. So Yeah, I appreciate you coming out here and having dinner with me tonight and spending some time talking every week that I get into a conversation with people, I always feel like it's a godsend. Like I'm understanding that more and more every day. So like last week, what Cheryl and I talked about was healing this week. What you and I talked about is healing. And I know that it'll continue to be that way. I think that's what our friends are for. And I think that 
one of the things that I have said about myself um, and my desires for what I did in the world um, are I would like to travel the world and talk to people. And I think that that's a bit of what my voice is doing now. It's just happening in a different way than I ever imagined it would happen. And I'm grateful to have you here at the dinner table tonight with me. I think we all go through a lot of things and it's nice to know that human commonality is that we go through things together. And like you said, you know, we're all experiencing the same thing. I uh, like that is iron sharpens iron. So a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Mm-hmm. Countenance is attitude. Is We help each other get through our moods and our emotions. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, friends, for coming again to the dinner table every week. I appreciate you all so much. And like always, don't forget to rate, review, share this podcast with a friend. If you're on YouTube, subscribe to my channel today. And if you have a desire to support the efforts that I'm continuing to do, Go over to the show notes at dinnertabletalks.com and up at the top, it'll say support the podcast. Just click that bus- button and throw a couple bucks at me. It means the world to me and helps me keep doing what I'm doing. Thank you all so much for being here, Rick. Thank you so much for your time. Love you guys. See you all. Day.